I'm an atheist, and I do not personally believe in any particular myth anymore. I do think myth is necessary. Would it be wonderful to eliminate the need for a mythical origin story? Yes. But to ask people to go through the process of rebuilding their world is unethical. We need myth because it is a form of understanding, of processing the world. It has a psychological dimension, understanding oneself, and sociological one, understanding the other. Many cultural and religious products fulfill this function today. Superhero movies, concerts as sacred arena level rituals, consumerism and the self-mythologizing of, of social media production. These are all tools for meaning construction, whether we acknowledge them as such or not. Myths are so important because stories in general are so important. They tell us truths about who we are as individuals and who we are as a collective. Even though it's not necessarily empirical, factual type truths, they're still like deeper psychological, philosophical truths that stories are able to quantify. We need myth because we need ways to explain the human experience to the younger generation and to remember that life has a lot of mystery in it. I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Apostates Anonymous, the show you turn to when you're no longer an evangelical or even a Christian. Join hosts Matthew J. DiStefano and Keith Giles as they tip over just about every sacred cow known to man. You're sure to have a good time if you're a heathen or heretic or apostate or reprobate. If you're an evangelical, maybe you won't have such a good time. But either way, we want you to listen. You can check out Apostates Anonymous wherever you get your podcast fix. G'day and welcome back to another episode of the Ideas Digest podcast with we two optimistic Aussie blokes. My name's Conrad. My name's Matt. Oh wait. This is Matt. <laughs> that's, hey, still my thunder. That's Matt. I'm on a roll. I've even, I've even forgot to give the intro. The podcast where we explore challenging ideas outside of our echo chamber in order to open our minds, achieve world peace, bring enlightenment to all. That's some lofty goals I don't think we achieve, but we give it a darn good shot we anyway. We try. We try. And that's all any of us can do. So buckle up if you're new. It can be a bumpy, uncomfortable ride sometimes when you're listening to someone you disagree with. Regular friends. You say bumpy, but um, enlightening. Bumpy, but um, nasal gazing. <laughs> na na navel. Navel gazing. <laughs> Just delete that. <laughs> uh, so, but I think regular friends of the show are already buckled up, Matt, because they, they know... This ride can sometimes get a bit challenging, trying to trying to look as best we can at our navel, some might say. Look at our own... <laughs> where do our biases live? They live in our navel. They live in our... No, nasal. What did I say before? No, it's is it it's navel gazing. Is nasal it? is the nose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty... I put some good money on it that it is... Na navel is the belly button yeah, and yeah, nasal right. is... I'm trying. Like I'm <laughs> We just... can nasal gaze too, Matt. If I know, you want. but that's... <laughs>
It's navel. Yeah, navel. Yeah. Maybe delete this out. This is no, so this bad. Is no, no, no. Some of that in. That's going to be good. Anyway, speaking of super friends, these are the friends that went to itisdigest.org, signed up, support the show. And this show is brought to you by the super friends because they are the ones that support us. And we are so thankful to have their support. If you would like to support us, you can join and become a super friend and you'll also support. Uh, you'll Tell also us about the exclusive benefits, though. The exclusive benefits you get. But wait, there's more. There's always more, Matt. You get ad-free content each week. You get bonus content. And Matt, you hear what you and I really think. Because up here on our high horse, we are bastions of objectivity. You know, we, we're in the middle. We're the middle ground. But, nay, super friends see our humanity. Because we are a bit honest sometimes. So, that's what you'll get if you sign up and support the show. Anyway, Matt, it's been a great start. It's time to hear from some haters. Oh, man. <laughs> you hate this segment. <laughs> Just warm you into it. But Matt... Sometimes when we fear no idea, we know this, friends of the show, save positive feedback before we get I into just, it. I just, I just, it's going to start with positive. I'll give you a bit of a If I get up. slightly moody, you understand why. Well, this one isn't about you, so you're fine. Uh, but people have said, we like that you fear no idea. That's awesome. You, you, you're talking about stuff that people don't, you know, are afraid to talk about. And I'm like, great. That's really great. But guess what? As we move through the dangerous new lands we often step on a landmine wake up and discover we're in the middle of two warring sites and matt was walking along landmine love youtube youtube's great for us you can podcast listeners you can find us our videos on youtube support like subscribe it's great to <laughs> have your support on that channel too but youtube's great because no it's it's the algorithm the god of the algorithm is is sprinkling our ideas digest dust ideas to the winds and they end up in fields i never thought oh yeah could have existed right the sower went forth to sow <laughs> <laughs> is that a, a giving me a parable yes that's oh, what i'm saying yes yes it like it definitely goes amongst different grounds jesus was talking about the algorithm he was talking about youtube and he did not know but particularly the thorny ground the thorns the seed landed yeah. in some thorny ground this week man. the haters <laughs> the haters and so anyway i released an episode some time ago with very intelligent i actually don't know if friend of the show helen is a pseudo intellectual or an intellectual by golly felt like an intellectual i was like strapping in trying to keep up mm. with you know her intellectual rigor you Great. would you would have done your conrad smiling and nodding but inside you're like oh crap <laughs> <laughs> so as anyway this conversation i chopped it up into pieces and let the god of the algorithm spread it to the winds and one of them a friend of the show helen and myself were talking about c.s lewis hmm. now boy that's a landmine i discovered oh, wow c.s lewis here's the clip here's the clip C.S. Lewis. Yeah. When he says, probably mainline Christian worldview, mm -hmm. which is because there is this itch I cannot scratch, mm -hmm. to paraphrase in a completely different way, there must be an almighty back scratcher out there that can hit the itch. If I have a desire that cannot be filled yeah. in this earth or whatever, then there must be something out yeah. there. Therefore, I'm made for something more. Whereas it sounds like you're saying that lack, that yeah. itch that cannot be scratched is the ideal that drives us forward to It's that which creates the everything. feeling that there might be something, but there isn't something. There, and so you would say there isn't something. But, but there's um, a journey on the way to the, to the something that doesn't exist. That's the best thing. And that's 
life. That's life. You're like, and that engine to try and achieve what can never be achieved. Yeah. If you have achieved it, it would all be over. Creates art. Yeah, creates business, exactly. Creates innovation. We exactly. create something. There's the clip. Now, the landmine I stepped on, Matt, was C.S. Lewis. Mm. You know, we, we come across these cultural icons that are held dear to people, held close to people. And that's, a, that's an Instagram short, right? So people just literally watch that. Let's hear what some of the haters have to say. Now, remember, friends of the show, a hater is just a friend of the show that doesn't know it yet. So, uh, hater slash future friend of the show, Matthew2779. Oh, wow. He says, C.S. Lewis was brilliant. I think it was pretty smart too. Wrote tons and tons of books, was one of the most prolific writers of his time. You got a YouTube channel, correct? Do you see the difference yet? Lewis studied his whole life. All you have is an opinion based on absolutely nothing. <laughs> I just thought it was great. It's like, cool, yeah. And that's so why I replied, you know, on my high horse as I'm on YouTube. I'm on brand. i got to stay mm. on brand. So I say, hey, mate, bit harsh, but I'd love to hear more. Email me at itisdigest.gmail.com because yeah. I'm trying to fish one of these haters to come on the show. Mm. I came this close with Peter Plotz. Oh, wow. Remember that guy? Yeah, yeah, did yeah, yeah, yeah. That was he true. He emailed me back and forth. He was interested. And I'm like, all right, let's line up a time. time and he ghosted. Mm. I'm going to get one, Matt. I'm going to get one of these elusive YouTube haters. Anyway, YouTube future friend of the show and current hater, The Looking Glass, says millennial vanity. (laughs) (laughs) So, and then God Army 7711. I wonder why his bias is coming from. Let me think. I can't think of one. The Army of God. (laughs) This could be from God's Army. Yeah. And he says, Triple Seven, come on. You know you're... No, it's only two sevens. Oh, okay. Sorry. No, yeah. no. Two sevens, two, two sevens. ones. He says, I lost 28 brain cells listening to this. And then Bastion Ideas Digest said, just be glad it wasn't 29. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I thought I thought it was interesting because... <laughs> that's a good... That's a real like... Oh, you like that one? Oh, it's good. <laughs> it's like, could have been worse, mate. Could have been way worse. Um, I just... I found it interesting because this video is just circling in these... Yeah, what is it about... What do you think it is about that conversation that the algorithm is <coughs> sending it forth to the stony ground? Yeah, the yeah thorny ground. fully the thorny ground. <laughs> and it's only people who hate the clip that com- that are watching it and commenting on it. Well, the birds could be the haters. Remember they came and they sold and they the, seeds? the seeds? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't... Well, it's interesting. So there's a flashpoint around C.S. Lewis in here mm-hmm. that... He's deep, near and dear to people's hearts, totally. And yeah, I butchered the analogy there. I was just flying from the seat of my pants just trying to say what I thought C.S. Lewis was saying and then Helen had an interesting take on it. Like, I mean, long form, check out the conversation. Lots of interesting depth to it. But it's almost as if I... It's as, I feel like the reaction as if, is as if I have been blasphemous with a sacred text. Mm, yeah. And I can understand C.S. Lewis so dear to people it's like if I'm not in 100% agreement, or if I'm questioning or if I'm saying... Because I don't even, don't even critique C.S. Lewis. But, Interesting. But everyone who's mm. watching it really didn't like... I don't know. I, I guess actually, you know, I do know what it was just as I think it now. The title of it as I was sacrificing my dignity to the God of the oh, algorithm. The title of the video is C.S. Lewis was wrong. <laughs> I needed to be there and hold you back from the abyss. No! No, so there wasn't enough. Throw myself off like in <laughs> Avengers or whatever. <laughs> Are you um? I can't even forget who died. You're um Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, well, Fair come enough. on. Fair enough. Can't you see? <laughs> I check you out from time to time. Uh, so anyway, I thought that was interesting. I love hearing from the haters. It's an interesting perspective. Mm. Uh, hope it didn't bring you down. Well, I think yeah, much. I think you enjoy it more than I do. But anyway, let's move on. <laughs> Yeah, Matt doesn't like it. I love this segment. Okay, well, on to the next one. We're still at war with God himself. 
Okay. Jesus, no. That guy's nice. God is in the Trinity. Jesus, no. What? what? More powerful, some might say. The al- what? The algorithm God. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Don't get me started on the algorithm. So anyway, if you'd like to support us, you know, not sacrifice too much of our dignity to the God of the algorithm, you can help us out like... Baxton BB, he sent a text message with the link of our podcast episode to his friend. And this was the recent episode I did with Hillary McBride. Great, oh, yeah. great conversation. Yep. He sends to his friend, this podcast is as deep as you are. We don't know if it's backhanded. Don't know. We don't know. Don't know. What is on the other end of that? I hope there was one more listen that week. <laughs> so if you would like to help us, send, a, send, a, send an episode to mm. someone who might love it. And maybe someone who might not love it with a cryptic message that makes them listen to it. Maybe, I think, yeah, maybe the person that would love it. Because I know you love the hater segment. I, I, do. I don't like it as much. So maybe yeah, yeah. if we go to some people that would, might be... They oh, might Matt. Get it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, next week, Matt, I'm going to read you some praise. Okay. We've, been getting, we've been getting some good feedback. You still some, had a fragile upbringing. Some right? good reviews. Yeah, Matt's like, I've come here for a good time. <laughs> don't, don't bring me down. Whereas I get... A weird amount of enjoyment out of That's like strange. YouTube pages. I'm like, Who, what's, who's writing this? It's like, it's like, are you into whips and things like that? <laughs> Masochistic. <laughs> That's for the super friends to find. <laughs> fair, fair point. Uh, so, in this episode to the to the point of the episode. This is a special episode. It's going to be an episode segment that I'm going to go with called "Not a Debate." Hmm. So this is where I get two friends of the show with opposing views, and they get to talk to one another. But Matt. It's not a debate. Not a debate. Okay, it's not. This is another. Ah, this is another debate. thing. If you're walking with the the horse through the like, trenches and yeah, trying to be yeah. like, this will work. It Doesn't won't. Work, it's, yeah. it's doomed to fail. Oh, so you ooh, look at that pessimism <laughs> over there. Well, so let me introduce you to a friend of the show, Heather Hamilton. Okay. You can confess some judgments as I describe her to you. Uh, she is one of you're gonna love. Her. She's one of these slippery eel types oh. that maybe has deconstructed from her former fundamentalist religious worldview, but didn't end up in the Dawkins' great atheist camp. Yeah, right. So you know how I get along with slippery eels. Yeah. So I sort of you try and you try and box them, and they're like, and I sort of coined the term about someone I might know. When someone refuses to be boxed, I see Matt's like right eye twitch slightly. He's like, just take the box. Just so give some boxes. Come on. What 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 are you thinking? Well, you're already like. It's hard, right? Politically, what kind of box are you going to put? Okay, in? politically, it's tough. You reckon? Yeah, like because part of I'm me going lefty. Part, totally. I'm, part of me thinks center right. Oh, oh, because of her upbringing. Oh yeah. Oh. She may have been far right. Now she's coming back. <laughs> she's heading left. Oh, you think it's such a long journey? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she didn't make it all the way. She hasn't passed go yet. <laughs> Which is the middle. <laughs> Oh, okay, I was gonna. It's like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. even though it's the end, but the beginning. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah. getting into this whole monopoly, monopolistic type thing. All right, well, see, I was going like totally. Got to be an environmentalist. That's what I was thinking. Okay, she's got it. See, I've gone the opposite way to you. I'm like, she's got to have been tweeting to cancel someone online at some point in her mm. life. Oh, you can't say that. Cancel tweet. You know, the angry lefty yeah. Twitter sphere. That's like, I don't know. That was my anything. You went the other way. Yeah, but these are wild guesses. Oh, of course. Judgments. Mm. What, what judgment aren't wild guesses? I need to know more. I need... That's not how judgment works, Matt. No, but I need to see her or something. I need to be oh, like... You need more judgment. Has she written material. a book? Do you want to look at her Instagram? She has written a book. Okay. What's the book called? It's called Returning to Eden. Whoa. I mean, that could be multiple things. And it's about... This might justify my center-right thing. It's about, on the way. Okay. It's about myth and mm. metaphor, using the Bible metaphorically. 
yeah, now I would have gone far, far left. Far, far left. Set a left now. <laughs> Burning. She's already past go. <laughs> She's feeling the burn. So anyway, I had a friend of the show, Heather, who's written a book, like I said, Returning to Eden, about, you know, introducing people into religious myth, religious metaphor. And then I went, you know, I'm in this, I'm in this marketplace of new spiritual ideas, you know, make my life better. I want to bring along a friend to make sure I don't just buy anything wholesale, you know. So I brought along returning friend of the show, almost Dawkins grade atheist oh, wow. friend of the show, Alice. So she's been on the show before, great friend of the show. Really, She's a, she's a Sam Harris. Great friend. I'd say close. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I brought her along to be like, hey. She's going to get triggered. I'm this like, is the thing, Conrad. You know right. what's going to happen. I know. I'm like, hey, you guys disagree? Discuss. But <laughs> it's, not, it's not a debate. It is a debate. <laughs> Don't be a slippery eel on this topic. <laughs> Take a listen and tell me what you think. Okay. I, I, I genuinely think you're going to be surprised. Okay. I'd like to introduce brand new friend of the show, Heather. Heather, welcome to the Ideas Digest podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, I, I just need to box and stereotype you really quickly and then we'll get into a bit more about you later. But I'm getting this assumption. You've written a book. It's called Returning to Eden and I've read probably 60% of it and I'm nice. getting this strong vibe that you are some kind of out of touch, woo <laughs> Christian mystic who can't be boxed. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, uh, how do you box me in? The no box that I, I'm like... Yes, hey, I knew it. You'd try to wriggle out. Frustratingly ambiguous, yeah. yeah. Just any label you like to just kind of wriggle out of it. I yeah. knew it. I knew it. Okay, so thanks for just sitting in that box, staying put for right now until uh -huh. we you know, get into the nuance later. And I'd like to introduce another friend of the show. Look at this. Lots of people on the I Just I Just podcast. Friend of the show, returning friend of the show, Alice Gretchen. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, I would just quickly like to box you. You are some angry atheist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that's, the happiest angry atheist. The giggly angry atheist, yeah. I might be the happiest angry atheist. Uh, let's begin the discussion, I suppose. Let's start with a soft pitch on, I guess, what you're writing about and the ideas you'd like to introduce to friends of the show here. Yeah, so the book uh, is called Returning to Eden, a field guide for a spiritual journey and for the spiritual journey. And basically what it does is it opens up all the childhood biblical stories that were usually, usually kind of stuck in the mud arguing over whether they're literal, you know, did Jonah really get swallowed by a whale and sit in this belly for three days and like God can do anything so it's possible versus that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And it has, it carries like no value whatsoever. So I'm trying to get us out of that mud and open up the stories as like symbolic maps into the inner world and sort mm. of um, the stories as myths that are telling us something about like psychological and spiritual healing. So I'm trying to move us from literal to like symbolic thinking and emphasize the point that like, for me, I'm not sure it's as optional as we would like to believe it is, like just take it or leave it. I think that the myths are either living you or you're aware of them and you have like some say in your fate. Okay. So as far as I'm gathering it, you're, you're almost saying that there are myths and stories that are around us and we, these, these myths shape us and they're almost unavoidable and you would mm -hmm. like to unpack some of these and introduce some of these biblical myths in a way that can be, that can help us move through our personal quote unquote spiritual journey. 
Yes. That sound rough. Okay. All right. Yep. So before, before we get into that idea, I'm going to kind of encapsulate it as like, do we need myth? Is myth helpful? It sounds like you're saying myth is helpful for, for moving us through a spiritual journey, through a human growth journey, if we want to avoid the, the ambiguous term spiritual. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. um, Heather, I'd like to just get some kind of judgments off you know, everyone's chest. And I think the easiest way to do this, what are some judgments that you've gotten? You're kind of putting your work out there in the public sphere. People, you know, love to comment angry, derogatory things on, on the internet. What, what do people think about you? What are some of those judgments? Uh, I think people don't really know what to do with me. So, you know, I've kind of gotten um, this like, are you a, you're the Christian who doesn't believe in hell or any of the things that Christians are supposed to believe in versus like you, you can't be a Christian because, yeah, I think that the biggest criticism is like people just don't, like, they don't know what to do with me and I don't have like great language for helping them nail it down. So they, they almost don't want to, would they accept you're a Christian? They'd be like, no, she's not a Christian. She's one of these fringe. I, I, th- you know, I think, Christians. I think it's usually a question mark. In their okay, in their head, okay. yeah. Okay, okay. So Alice, friend, friend of the show, Alice, returning friend of the show, Alice, happy, angry atheist, Alice. Alice, <laughs> you kind of been in that public sphere, that potentially the deconstruction sphere of people questioning their religion. What are some of the judgments people throw at you on a daily or on a weekly? Hmm. Um, that I'm terribly misguided that Mm -hmm. I'm actually not a nihilist um, because no joy can be found through nihilism Um, Mm -hmm. and that I'm on a crusade to squash spirituality and leave no mystery in life. I feel like those would be pretty Mm -hmm. fair uh, fair You're a killjoy. You're that, a spiritual killjoy. I'm a spiritual killjoy, yes. <laughs> okay. yeah. Now, uh, you know, this is always difficult with very friendly people who um, just meet each other. But Heather, <laughs> do you have any assumptions? You know, you might know a little bit about Alice, a little not. Do you have any, you know, judgments and assumptions to get off your chest? Like I've gotten one off my chest. She's going to be an angry atheist. Oh, like I can get another one off my chest. Like Alice, you're a hedonist. You just want the pursuit of pleasure at all other things and you're completely morally bankrupt. That's you. Okay. So, that go for it. It is hard because I really like Alice. So uh, if I had to pull something out, I would say like, I think that, yeah, I just think that there's something about mythology that would be valuable to her that she's not seeing. And if she saw it, she would agree with me. And then we would be uh, like BFFs. Nice. And no. we still might end You're up being that. <laughs> yeah. So, so you could almost almost be good friends. Yes. If only Alice just understood this one thing. That's good. We'll, we'll come to that later. Alice, yeah. do you have any kind of assumptions about Heather? Like, do you think, you know, Heather, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go first. Heather, you're naive. Yes or no? Oh, <laughs> you want me to affirm or not? I don't. Yeah, God. yeah. I mean, I think other people would think that I was. I, I think. Okay. Do it, you think you are? I don't think I am. <laughs> okay, great. That's what matters. That's the point yeah. of this. It's like people say this. Do you think yeah. that's true or not? Alice, I've warmed her up for you. Go. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I also very, very much like Heather from every interaction I've had with her thus far. But <laughs> for the sake of this banter that you love to put us in, Conrad, yeah, I'm true. going to say um, 
Heather, you are one of those people who, to me, A, is a walking religious trauma trigger and is incapable of accepting that some people may just never be okay with myth and that there's nothing to get. Uh, Mm. Either we've gotten it and we just don't care. It's just not our language. Uh, that's, that's what I would say. We can find the same truths through other things. <laughs> oh yeah. See, I love so, that you use the word language. We're going to have to come back to it. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's really good because you essentially judge, this is great. This is why I love these conversations <laughs> because essentially when we have conversations with other people, we often go, there's something you don't get. And here's what that is. And both, you know, this is this is the practice of conversion that we go into that I actually try and avoid on the show. So despite me trying to like throw you together and like bang you together, like um, I'm in Bali at the moment and these kids, there's this new hit toy in Bali and it's like the... It's like two plastic balls on a string and kids just go and just bang them together really quick. So you hear this loud noise. I think we have a version of it in the 90s, I think. Um, But anyway, point, random point is like, it doesn't matter what that toy is. As much as I like to like bang peoples and ideas together, I actually really want to avoid this. This isn't a debate. Okay. Not, not the point. The point is to go, okay, um, Heather, you've written a book. It's an interesting book. It's got an idea to sell. I'm in, the, I'm in the car yard, I'm in the religion market, I'm looking for new ideas to make my life whole and complete, to make me a better person, and I've brought a friend, Alice, along. Now, Alice, she's the one that keeps me, like, you know, accountable to stuff. She's like, don't buy that, Conrad. You just, you wasted your money on that electric drum kit last week, right? Don't buy, don't buy this, okay? So, I've brought skeptic Alice along to kind of, like, balance the scales, but Heather... I'd like you to begin with a bit of, and you told us a little bit about the books about, but if you're going to sell an idea, that perhaps that idea that Alice doesn't quite get, and if she just got it, you would be BFFs and you'd really understand it. What is that idea that you have to sell to me and Alice today? Okay. So I'm actually going to read a quote to answer your question. All right. It's out of chapter four of my book called The Function of Myth. And it's a quote by um, a guy named Joseph Campbell, who was um, kind of brought comparative mythology, like into pop culture, uh, sort of in the eighties is when he kind of came to prominence. And he says, half the people in the world think that the metaphors of their religious traditions, for example, are facts. And the other half contends that they are not facts at all. As a result, we have people who consider themselves believers because they accept metaphors as facts. And we have others who classify themselves as atheists because they think religious metaphors are lies. Um, so my, like the idea that I'm trying to get through is that, um, all of us kind of, whether we like it or not, like whether we grew up in religion or not, like we have these languages, which are like, I would say like even deeper than our, you know, English, Spanish, French, like the languages that we use to communicate. We have this, these sets of like metaphors and symbols and mythologies that are like embedded into our psyches. And I think something that I've discovered is like, you know, uh, probably a lot of people who watch this podcast, like have deconstructed or like completely left religion or whatnot. And what I'm trying to get across is like, we can still use the language that is already that that's our mother tongue. Um, we can understand it in a different way and use it like to communicate about things that are kind of ineffable. Um, and it doesn't have to turn into this like anti-religion religion religion, where essentially, you know, like 
I don't know if the English language was used to like abuse us and traumatize us. It's, it's like, I, I gotta like go learn Spanish now. You know what I mean? It's like, and Spanish is like a beautiful language, but it's not, it, it's not what like comes to me in my dreams kind of thing. Like it's not what what's easily accessible. So yeah, like to Alice's, to what Alice was saying, like we can look at like religion as just a language and it's like, you can leave this or you can have it. But like, ultimately I think that we need a language to speak. And so I'm hoping that like, by sort of explaining like what the function and the symbolism of these biblical stories, it's almost like if you have kids, I'm going to say something about Santa. So take five <laughs> seconds to turn this off. Oh, what's Santa's it, secret? What, now yeah. we're intrigued. Yeah. But it's, it's almost like, you know, once you see the symbolism, kind of the magic and initially falls away, like as quickly as like learning that Santa isn't real, like, oh, I thought all this magical stuff was happening. It turns out my parents were putting the presents under the tree and like the whole thing kind of goes flat. Mm. And that's like step one. Step two is like when you really unlock the power of the myth it becomes like this re-enchantment with like, oh my God, I'm existing in the here and now with parents that love me enough to do this ridiculous stuff. And you can just like engage with the Santa myth in a way that like re-enlivens you and reignites you. And like, I have kids now and I'm like seeing it through their eyes. And it's like this return to this childlike wonder which I completely understand what's happening. Like Albert Einstein said, it's like the miracle is not that we can't understand it. The miracle is we understand all, like we can infinitely understand the universe and like how magical and mysterious this is. And so my theory that I'm putting forth in the book is like, <clears throat> this is what the Bible is ultimately about. It's not really the Bible's fault that like fundamentalist Christians like shoehorned all their dogma into it and traumatized all of us but we can like rediscover this as something useful. So it, it sounds to me like you're painting this world and this is where I was going to at the beginning. You've got a group of people that are gonna hear what you say and they, these are the people that fit in that potentially fundamentalist box that you're pointing out. They take, mm -hmm. they look at the Bible and they read it literally. Noah's Ark literally happened. Um, at like Genesis people, like the uh, was created in six literal days. Uh, yep. Jesus literally raising from the dead. And, you know, you can go through each one of those and they read it on this literal level, as you're saying, as if Santa is literally real. But you're trying to say that this text has a metaphorical landscape and a metaphorical language mm -hmm. that if we understand it on this mythical or metaphorical level, we understand, I suppose, are you saying like a deeper truth to human nature, a deeper truth to ourselves? Is, is that what you're saying? This understanding on this mythical level of religion helps us how? Yeah. Um, okay. So I think in the book, I kind of compare like psychologically or psychology and spirituality, like working in tandem together. Like if you think about your house and its pipes with like water running through the pipes. Okay. So the pipes would like represent spirituality and the water, I'm sorry, the pipes would represent your psychology and the water represents like your spirit running through. And like, 
if there's like a block in the pipe or there's a kink in the pipe or something, the water that's running through it is eventually like going to explode out. And so what I'm saying is that the mythologies are like therapeutic for our psyches. If we can understand, like they can tell us where we are psychologically and which direction to go and what's going to like clear the blockage out. So Mm -hmm. it's not just like, um, you know, we like flatten mythology and fairy tale of like, oh, you know, like Cinderella or something like that is a cute story. It's actually a very like psychologically deep and precise story. If you understand, um, this sim, this symbolic nature of what it's telling us about human nature. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, like I, I think for a lot of people, especially for those who like are dealing with like religious trauma, I mean, like you're like psychologically messed up until like you dig into that, you really don't understand like the pieces of the pipes that are blocked and everything, you know, it, mm-hmm. it feels like this very ambiguous thing. And the pictures mm-hmm. that we get in myths and fairy tales um, give us like landmarks on the roadmap to get out. Mm. You're, you're almost selling it in a sense of being like, if we deny this part of ex- exploring ourselves with this type of language, and perhaps this is what your pitch to Al- atheist Alice might be, or atheist friends of the show, it, you're saying that these myths, whether they're in fairy tales or in the Bible, they help us navigate the subconscious, the unseen, these archetypes, these human patterns that we can't quite mentally grasp with the logical kind of realm. And so we need this myth in order to help us navigate the complex human subconscious landscape. Alice, you've been listening so intently. (laughs) What is, I guess, my question to you is, what does this sound like to you? Because I can, I'll be proxy for fundamentalist friends of the show and I, I can hear what they would be thinking going, well, you're misinterpreting the Bible. You're not reading it properly. You've added this layer that isn't there. I'm just reading the Bible plainly. You're adding a layer that, you know, some modern psychological post-enlightenment layer that isn't there. And they would have those kind of, I think that's what they would be hearing. I think they'd be hearing some level of biblical heresy being like, you don't get it. What, it, what are you talking about? But I suppose Alice... Uh, I'm fortunate enough to have you on the show. What, is that, what does all that sound like to you, this, these ideas of myths being necessary for exploring the internal human landscape? Well, there's a lot of thoughts going through my mind. First, I want to say that I really appreciate that uh, the descriptor you gave at the beginning of, of your last segment, Heather, about how it's the, Chris, the verbiage of Christianity for many of us is a mother tongue. Um, I'll still think in that mother tongue sometimes. And so that, that analogy is helpful to me. Um, I also find value in myth, um, but it's not, again, with the word language, it's not a language that is comfortable for me it makes me feel uh, disastrously confused. I don't appreciate it. Um, I don't resonate with it. I, I always feel frustrated. Like, what, what are they getting at? What's the point? Why can't they just say the point? Um, it's so hard for me to, it, it's such an exercise. There's no intuitive, like, deep understanding of like, oh, like, that's, I feel something like I don't believe in souls. I don't believe in spirit. So the analogy of like the pipes in the water, I'm thinking like, 
if the pipes are my psychology, what, what is the water? What's it, what's something I could translate to that? And it's like, maybe water's my emotions, which I think are just, it's just neurochemicals to me as someone who, who has a, a much more um, empirical materialist view of, of the world. And that's how I've found joy and meaning. Um, and so I think that there's nothing, I don't hate on myth per se, in the way that it helps people. Because I agree, it's a very useful tool. But for someone like me and the way my brain works, because I know I'm not alone, um, like that Joseph Campbell quote you opened with that said, you know, say 50% um, really resonate with myth as fact, and the other 50% who are the the atheists resonate with myth as lies. I don't think it's either or. Um, Personally, uh, I I would not say that the, the symbolic resonances found within myth are lies, but they do not resonate with everyone. Not everyone can access whatever um, whatever truths there may or may not be in, uh, in that story. And it's interesting to me because I, I've, I've made it uh, qu- quite a little ways through your book, but what, in one of the earlier parts, you talk about how um, you don't like, and forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but paraphrasing, it feels arrogant to you when people like myself dismiss myth as fiction. Um, and for me, that's that's interesting because it's like, I do find value in myth because I look at it as fiction. I find value in fiction. I'm deeply moved by an historical fiction movie. Historical, okay, that's a gray area because it's based in reality. But say a total fantasy like a Marvel movie, I can be tremendously moved and relate to human truths about the human story in something like that. Um, but it's, it's I, I know that it's fiction. I'm not confused. I'm entertained and learning and absorbing something and uh, emotionally, I'm having an emotional experience. Um, the, 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 the hard point for me is when, um, again, to paraphrase your, your, your writing, uh, which is really good, by the way, like those of you who do resonate with myth are really, really, really going to love this book. Um, I'm very much enjoying it, even though I don't resonate with myth, but anyway, uh, I don't know. It's just curious to me. Like when when I think of something like Aesop's fables, I'm pretty sure it was Aesop who wrote the fable of like the tortoise and the hare. That's like a childhood fable slash myth, you might say. That the moral of the story is um, slow and steady wins the race because the hare thinks you can go all fast. And it's like, oh, like that was. Why don't we just say um, sometimes it's more beneficial to go slower through life instead of always racing ahead because you'll, you actually could fuck yourself up. Um, my brain learns better with that sort of direct real life relatability, uh, where I'm hearing stories about tortoises and hares. I'm like, wait, but why would the, why would they be racing? Why, why a tortoise though? Like I just get, my brain can't help but get caught up on all of the little fine print things. I can't just sit back and absorb. It's much more difficult for me. If someone's telling me like, there's a kernel of truth in here and you need to figure out what it is. Um, that was why I'm going to be blasphemous right now. Um, I, I, I really did. I, I, I hate Jesus. I really don't like oh, the character yeah. of Jesus. <laughs> he speaks in such riddles. Um, and it's like, why don't you just fucking say what you mean? Like you're the one who said that your yes be a yes and your no be a no. Who What's your sales you pitch, Jesus? Yeah. Yes. Well, cause it's like, I, and I feel like what someone must have mate? told Jesus that. 
and he repeated it because he himself never, to my perception, again, to the way my brain works, never just said what he meant. And it's like, why? Why do we have to jump through all these hoops? Why, why, do, why are you giving me a verbal puzzle to figure out? And, and implying that maybe there's high stakes, maybe those stakes are symbolic and I'm supposed to figure it out. I'm over here just shaking, like, this seems really important. And I can tell you really want me to get something. And I don't understand what it is because I'm just like, why are we talking about camels and needles and going through eyes? Like, I never mind what the deeper meaning is. I'm just so caught up and feeling anxious about like, I can tell someone's trying to tell me something that's like really important. So I'm really trying my earnest, like my most earnest to pay attention and grasp what they're saying. And I'm not getting it. And if I ask a question, I get another question back and another riddle back. And it's like, I just don't have patience for it. And one of the most liberating parts for me about leaving Christianity altogether is I no longer have to be confused that way anymore. I no longer have to feel the pressure of those stakes and try to seek those kernels of, of truth that other people seem to get so much more readily, even though they do differ with different interpretations. Um, for me, it's like such a relief to be like, oh, I can just learn from authors who tell it to me straight now. I don't have to learn from so-called sages and mystics and healers who don't speak a language that I understand, even though, again, Christianity, one could argue, is my mother tongue. Um, but even as a Christian, it made such little sense to me. And I was so, so vexed with Jesus. And that's partly why I left was I just got so tired of not ever feeling God myself. You write in your book that you had a, a spontaneous mystical experience. And that was what very much changed your faith in a profound way. I never had anything like that. Still haven't. Um, only through psychedelics, which again, I think of as a, as a very materialistic tool to, um, access some, I, some idea of what people call transcendence or connectedness. Um, so that's, yeah, I think, I think that's a, it's, it's it, a lot of it is just a language difference. And I think we could very well be talking about the same things, but one set of language really confuses people like me and does not bring us peace or, in, or inspiration. It brings us a lot of suffering and confusion and other people, um, the tell it to me straight facts is just so uninspiring and boring and like, ugh, and it just feels like death and they get inspired by myth and story and, and, and that. And so I think that's, um, in, in my summary, the, the distinction, <laughs> Does that, mm. yeah, I don't, I'm not sure what the original hearing, question was anymore. You did say that myth is useful. Like you, you're not fully discounting it, but then you'll say for you, you personally seem to feel as if you've been, you're just being cosmically toyed with by this Jesus character who can't just say what he means because you, Andrew, all these guys, just all these games, just say what you mean so that you can. Yeah, so, and so it sounds like you're saying on one level, okay, this doesn't work for me. I'm out on this myth level. It's not my language. It's not how I'm spoken to. And so I want to do a few things. I want to go, I wonder if um, you could tell me, Alice, what levels do you think myth is useful? You've said not for you, but you did say, oh, I do think myth is useful. I suppose in our modern Western context, Christianity is like the, the, the societal evolutionary ground that everything's kind of grown from. So it sounds like that's why when you're saying it's like the mother tongue, it's, it's even if people don't grow up Christian, it's still like, especially in America, it's still very culturally ingrained on so many different levels, I suppose. So it sounds like, okay, there is this 
uh, religious language that you can refer to as your mother tongue. But Alice, on what level then? Myth doesn't work for you, but on what level will you concede and go, all right, Heather, I actually am with you on myth being useful, but for what? Um, to people who will better grasp a concept or a moral for people who, who more naturally speak that language, which I think is very closely tied to intuition. Um, I don't describe myself as an intuitive person. I, I don't like, I don't resonate with the verbiage of intuition and soul. To me, I translate that. I, I feel like I always have a translator app on in my brain when because I have many spiritual friends. Um, and so I'm used to hearing a lot of this verbiage, but my translator app is always helping me out. Like when they say intuition, I hear gut instinct. When they say um, spirituality, I translate psychology or emotion or something like that. And so that's the only way that I'm able to track the conversation. But other people, if I start talking about, um, I'm trying to think of, of an example in the reverse. Uh, if I'm if I'm talking very pragmatically and factually and scientifically, and I'm just starting to see people's eyes glaze over, I think myth becomes very useful and beneficial and powerful if that particular person, especially if I know them, I know will resonate better with a story. And then I can be like, oh, it's like in that one movie, you know, like that scene where the mom tells the daughter, blah, 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 blah. And then they'll be like, oh, yeah. And so that's why I think myth is useful. Um, stories are useful, you know, and it's not like I never get anything from, from fictitious stories or myths myself. It's just, it's not my preferred language. And I find it very, um, just very frustrating. G'day, I'm Troy. And I'm Brian. And we're the hosts of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, an ex-evangelical podcast. We used to be loyal members and leaders in Australian Christian megachurches, but we're not anymore. I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist is an honest and hilarious peek behind the curtain at the weird, the worrying, and sometimes traumatic world of evangelicals and Pentecostals. We share our stories, we interview prominent guests in the global ex-evangelical space, and provide a platform for others to tell their stories about their time in evangelicalism and their journey out. Shortlisted at the recent Australian Podcast Awards, I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist gives you a unique global perspective into one of the fastest growing religions in the world from the people who actually lived it. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and IWasAteenageFundamentalist.com. I'm wondering how, what percentage we think, what we think society in the world looks like, because I think... a form of fundamentalism with these ideas that people hold. They go, this really worked for me, therefore everybody needs this idea. And the more dogmatic we are with that, politically it leads to fascism and um, religiously it's this fundamentalism that says, you must believe this doctrine because it worked for me, I suppose. And I think you're both in the camp of not being fundamentalists is why you're both on the show having a great conversation. But I suppose to get a sense of your picture of the world, Alice, when you say myth is useful for some people, if you were to just ballpark, I won't really hold you to the figure, but just as an imagination... If you were to ballpark, what percentage of people do you think need myth to communicate these ideas that perhaps like people wouldn't get in the most direct scientific way and go, oh, I'll use a story or a movie or something like that to, to communicate to that level of somebody because that's their language. What percentage of people do you think this kind of myth is needed for? If you're just to roughly ballpark it as you imagine society, unscientifically. Unscientifically ballpark, I'd say at least 80%. Yeah. I'm saying the vast majority of people, I think, 
need and understand the world through myth and story um, and, and, and fiction. And I know, I, I'm sorry if that word's load. I, I'm, I'm trying to be mindful of not being condescending or arrogant with my language. Yeah, um, well, yeah no. And I, I appreciate that. Cause I think like I, um, yeah, even to the, the quote and the comment about arrogance, I don't think that that's what you're doing. I think that there is a camp of more fundamentalist atheist people like any anybody can be fundamentalist it's you know it's it's like this grip on ideology where there's like a belittling of that's so stupid that that means anything to you or whatever and and i think that that arrogance comes from a lack of understanding of like what's actually happening or like needed in the human psyche and it's not anyway so to to your point I don't think that that is what you're saying. Um, um, Heather, then same question to you. Alice Ball parks about 80% of people, which I guess is most people, which kind of puts you guys almost in very, almost alignment with the vast majority. It sounds like Alice is saying, I'm kind of with you. 80% of people need this myth, these structures, which sounds like what you've been saying. What percentage do you ballpark people needing myth in order to understand this subconscious landscape that they hold? Gosh, I've actually, I've never thought about it in terms of like what percentage of people. I know like for my, like I'm married to someone who thinks, I think probably a lot like Alice, he's very rational. I'll start speaking in metaphors and he's like, oh, I don't know what you're saying. Like his eyes will glaze over when I'm like too metaphorical about something. Um, and I think that the, there's like an appreciation on both of our ends where I'm like, he's never gonna like spend all of his time like analyzing um, the insidious nature of envy through the Cinderella story and like where that's mm. like showing up in his life, you know? Like he he's literally like people envying him or he envying, it, it's really like just not something that he spends a lot of time thinking about. He's much more empirical, like probably like Alice is. Um, but for me, it's like, I can't like the empirical language feels so flat to me and feels like it's like minimizing, um, the, I don't know if intensity is the right word, but like the significance of some kind of experience or emotion or like even, um, yeah, as we were like talking about intuition or gut feeling, like I think that that is like that shows up, you know, on a day to day, like instinctual, you know, like I, I, I have a weird feeling about this person, like I got to go and there's no like rationality behind it. It's just like a bodily wisdom. But there's there's also this this other thing um, going back to Joseph Campbell again about like following your bliss or staying on the balance beam of your life kind of thing. And it's like, you know, even writing this book or whatever, it was like, if I don't do this, it wasn't like, this is like the thread or direction of, of where my life's going and what has to like come out of me. And if I don't do this, like I'm going to become completely neurotic. Like it, it, it wasn't. And, and in order to like communicate that to people, it's like, I find myth very useful where it's like, okay, Jonah and the whale, you know, it wasn't just like a, do it or go find another job kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like you can do this or you kind of do this, like, you know, 
you got to work really hard on the book and make no money. And like rationally, it's like not really making any sense of like, why would I do this? You know, or wh why would I even say this stuff? It's like, mm -hmm. there's like social consequences and, and all these kind of things, you know, where like someone kind of just thinking logically or, you know, strictly rationally about it would be like, maybe you shouldn't write that. Maybe you shouldn't put it, you know what I mean? Like maybe there's not a lot mm -hmm. of upside to it. But when I'm using like the language of myth, it's like life is going to have its way with me one way or another. So I can either like give birth to this thing that's already in me or try to keep it in. And it's going to like drag me down into like neuroticism, depression, but it has to come out of me somehow. And like there's a whole chapter even about like demons and devils and like the concept of like all a demon is, is something of your life force. I guess we could talk about the soul or whatever that means, but like your vital life energy that is not being permitted to have expression in the world. And so the more like you repress it, it's like the angrier that energy becomes um, and starts to like mess with you psychologically. So anyways, mm -hmm. that when I, when I think about it in those terms, it's like, oh no, I have to do this. You know what I mean? If I don't do this, the boat's going to be mm -hmm. rocking and I'm going to like drown. And I have like, I've got three kids. I've got little people who are depending on me not doing that, you know? So anyways, when I'm like trying to communicate like the why, why do I have to do this as opposed to something else, like to my husband, for instance, like he's kind of just learned to be like, okay, I don't really understand that, but I trust, I trust whatever Heather's saying, like she's got to do like she, mm. for her, this is like, there's like wisdom in it that I can trust. It sounds like you're describing this level of unknown within yourself that you're using this mythical language as a structure to excavate that which you feel is inside of you that you're trying to access but can't access it directly and logically. And what what strikes me in the conversation so far is that the the main, I suppose, I wouldn't even call it a disagreement. I'd call it an assertion for how each of you engage with reality um, or how you, yeah, I suppose how you interpret reality and how you, I guess, as a, as a human interact with reality. As you talk about, okay, we all know someone in our life and I think this is why fundamentalism breaks down very quickly is because of exactly what you're talking about. You're saying Alice is going, okay, no, I agree that this is valuable for probably the vast majority of people, but you're, you're, you're pushing for space within the world for you to go, this doesn't work for me. I, I, people are telling me this, that 80% of people, I'm not clicking with them. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the odd one out in a group of nine people. I'm the one going, oh, this is the story. I get what you're saying, but it's not quite working for me. Just really quickly, if I'm to, I like just boxing and stereotyping whenever I possibly can to see if it is helpful. Uh, and and uh, Alice, you may not find this question helpful, but I know your friends of the show, my wife in particular, found this very this next question very helpful. Heather, on the Enneagram, which number are you? Mm. God, this is so hard to talk about because even in this space, I feel like it's like there's like ninety percent pop Enneagram where it's like, if you're this number, you're going to like love the pumpkin lattes kind of thing, which, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but where 
like kind of like the deeper that I've gotten into it, I actually feel like a lot of people are probably mistyped. Um, and it, oh. came, it took me like a long time to like actually come to my type because like the nature of the Enneagram is that you can't really see it in yourself. It's like a fish swimming in the water where it's like, there is like some self-reflection um, where you're like, I think these are my internal motivations, but it's very hard to like observe from the outside what the fish is actually doing or whatever. Are you saying that like it's if other like a useful part of diagnosing oneself is other people, the lens of someone else? Uh, the lens of someone else who really, really has spent a long time with it and is still open to learning like, um, where I've kind of finally, like, I don't even know if I'm ever going to come to like a hundred percent. I feel sort of open handed about it. And yeah, even like in, in a lot of the well-respected literature, I, I, I have, um, come to some, like, I, I don't think that's quite right. Or I don't think it's like exclusive to that type or whatever. All this yes. to, huge preface to say, yes. Excellent. Um, yeah, I'm a nine. Oh. So yeah. Says it all. Knew it. No, I'm just kidding. I'm yeah, just yeah, yeah. So, which which I like. Okay. I actually was going to guess that. I mean, I, had, I was thinking, yeah. yeah. Yes. yes. And oh. I, and I'll go ahead and say, and this is where it's like probably will piss like a bunch of people off. I thought I was a four for about three years because four is like, it's like the sensitive type or has this real tumultuous like inner world and is so emotional. And I'm like, I mm. resonated with all of that. And I came to the Enneagram after this like, you know, mystical experience. And I had like rediscovered myself and found myself. So I was like engaging with the Enneagram as I was like self-actualizing. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm this individual, you know, and I always have been and blah, blah, blah. So I really resonated with that and the defense mechanism the f defense mechanism of interjection, which was like assigned to the four by Naranjo. I th feel like this is going so much longer than what okay. you asked for. Well, I, no, but, no, that's uh, <laughs> like deserves I, some nuance. I guess yeah, there's, but, a, there's a lot of different levels to, to this. And I think the reason why I go, all right, what's, what is, a, I think the Enneagram as I'm attempting to employ it is a very crude approximation of when I'm talking about how we engage and communicate with reality. The Enneagram, I think, any personality typing tool, I think, can do it just to the point where you say, oh, you see the world differently to me and it's kind of like in a way externally validating going, yeah. okay, so you're a nine. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's someone who's different to me. Therefore, you're going to communicate with reality slightly differently. So mm -hmm. Alice, if I just squeeze you into a quick box for people to go, oh, well, how is she engaging with reality? And that box is the Enneagram box. Jump out of it as soon as you want. But where do you fit? I'm a five wing six consistently for mm -hmm. over a decade. My husband is a five wing six. <laughs> no way. Boom. <laughs> yes. You were yeah. born to be BFFs. Yes. Well, but it was funny I, because like, as you're talking, I'm like, I, my husband wouldn't call himself an atheist, but I, as you're talking, I'm like that these are the conversations that we have where I, I start, you know, going on about, about mythology and metaphor and describing that reality. And he's just kind of like, could you just spit it out? You know what I mean? Like whatever you're, what saying, whatever saying? you're saying. But what's funny yeah. is like in, in some of his, this is an aside, but he um, has been dealing with like lymphoma and getting cancer treatment and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, um, and luckily we're like on the other side of it and he's 
like good to go for the time being. But like the, that will start to like break up some of the unconscious things, you know, like, what am I really afraid of? Have I confronted my fear of death? Because now I, I'm in, I'm having a bit of an existential crisis. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. so what's interesting about it is like, even in dreams, you know, like he, he would start having strange dreams, you know, that were really like, felt really powerful to him. It was like, oh, I dreamed blah, 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 blah. And I was like, interesting. Let's think about like, what is that telling you? I, st stuff like that, like, I don't think is random, you know, like even in, I mentioned this in the book, like kind of universally, like in mythology, like water is a symbol for the unconscious. So like in these tumultuous times of like growth, personal growth, like a lot of people will dream about water, you know, like a, a hurricane, I'm in a hurricane or something like that. And it's like, what do those clues have to tell me? Because the unconscious can't say, to your point, Alice, like your unconscious can't be like, hey, you need to deal with your fear of death and you're on the wrong career track. You know what I mean? Like you're not going to like get that. It can't tell it to you like that. Instead, it's going to conjure up people and uh, symbols and, you know, things like water or snakes or whatever to say like this, this archetype is embodying this energy and this is like the best I can do for you. <laughs> so it, it sounds like when you say that you're going almost further than, so there's this level that says, okay, myth helps us communicate with reality and helps us con communicate our internal self. But obviously with your personal experience with your husband, who's probably, who's a similar type to Alice, mm -hmm. like of engaging with the world logically, rationally, just speak it in the most plain language we can. None of this hidden, um, yeah metaphor necessary to be used it also sounds like you're saying so the question i asked you heather was just like okay what percentage of the of of the population need myth and i'm going to approximate and guess and correct me where i'm where i'm off it sounds as if you're saying on some level that 100 percent of people have a depth to themselves that they cannot know themselves so even your husband who's like nah, i just don't get it you would even say him facing something as traumatic as the end of existence and going through mm -hmm. something as difficult as cancer. You're saying you've seen, you saw him personally, I suppose, excavate a level that a layer to himself that he possibly didn't even know. And then in that you're saying, and that is where myth is helpful for perhaps 100% of people. Is that too far to say? No, I think that that, I'm so glad that you just made that connection because it reminded me. So he actually, you know, helped me edit the book, like proofread it or whatever. And I started it before he got his latest cancer diagnosis. So he wasn't like in this existential headspace or anything like this. And he read it and he was like, yeah, it's really good. And he even said, I don't think I'm your target audience. Like, it's good. Like, I, you're my wife and it's a good book. And like, I objectively think <laughs> but it's I'm a good book. But I'm not buying book. it. <laughs> well, yeah, but just like, I just don't think that like, this is something I would pick up and read. And that's not a judgment against your book. I just don't think I'm the target audience was his thing. Mm. So then I like, you know, was revising it and going through other drafts or whatever. And then he read it again as he was going through his testing and getting his diagnosis or whatever. And he was like, did you like... It, this feels like a whole new book. It feels like you made a lot of changes to this book. And I'm like, I really didn't. But he was just engaging it from another level of awareness and consciousness where it's like some of this stuff is just like hitting me and it didn't the first time. And I've had those experiences. Like a lot of 
you know, teachers or thoughts of wisdom or anything. It's like when I was an evangelical Christian, even the Bible stories, I'm like, none of this meant anything to me. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not thinking about Jonah and the whale like ever. I'm not thinking about Noah's Ark ever. It's not something like maybe like Jesus was kind of constantly like in my consciousness, but all the other stuff, it was like, I didn't get any of it. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's just weird. It's just something that you have to like kind of force yourself to believe because you've ascribed to like a deity in the sky that can quote do anything. It wasn't until like, it was a certain point in my life when it opened it up. It was like, why didn't no one tell me this? And I'm like, even if they had, I don't think I would have heard it, you know? Mm. So Alice, as you hear that, is, is there then a dimension to yourself that you can not possibly engage with the rational language that you prefer to engage with reality within? Um, I think so. If I'm understanding your question correctly, like what I, what I'm hearing and what Heather just said reminds me of when I'm talking um, with parents and they say like, Oh, you'll just never understand until you're a parent. Fair. I'll never understand what it's like to look at the world as though I'm dying until I'm dying and actively facing death. There's only so far our imagination can can take us. And I do have a very active imagination. Um, again, it just it just speaks a different language. And dreams are interesting because I definitely went through a multi-year period post-Christianity where I was fascinated by dream interpretation. And there's a lot of dream interpretation in the Bible. Um, and in, if just throughout history, it was a, a very esteemed career to be a, a dream interpreter. And, you know, like I, I, I'm familiar with things like, oh, water represents the unconscious, but there's, there's this voice inside me that's always like, but who said, like, who decided water is going to symbolize unconscious? What if water to me symbolizes freedom? Because when I'm just floating there, I feel weightless and free. I think symbols are so deeply personal. And so when I, when I read things like, oh, you know, snakes symbolize this or a car in your dream symbolizes yourself. Are you in the driver's seat? That means you feel like you have control over your life. Are you not? Then you don't, you know, I'm like, says who? Cars were only invented like a hundred years ago. So it's very frustrating for me, um, that type of symbolic uh, worldview because it's like who who decided what the symbols mean and who decides what the new things what if I dream of my iPhone who has anyone decided what the iPhone symbolizes yet you know it's like that's where that's where I get stuck <laughs> are you hearing a, a hidden layer of dogmatism within this mythic worldview maybe not dogmatism is not the right word maybe it's like literalism because I suppose Heather you're trying to move away from a literalism in a sense of the Bible um, but are you hearing a level of, um, because I suppose what some people will hear what people have done with the Bible is go, well, Heather, what I'd assume you would be saying people have done with the Bible. They took this mythical, uh, metaphorical text and they made it, they, you know, made it as literal as the scientific worldview. So they went, okay, well, the earth orbits a sun. That's a, that's a mechanistic explanation of how, you know, weather patterns and every astronomy works. And then we did that to the Bible and went, okay, well, we're sinners and then God's almighty and then his son dies and that nullifies your sins. So that's like a mechanistic explanation. Alice, are you hearing some level of a mechanistic explanation for the subconscious? So the best way I can answer that is I don't necessarily hear 
literalism and people who are fluent in myth, let's just say, who speak that language. Um, I don't hear literalism, certainly for some, but I don't feel like this party here needs to address the literalist argument. I feel like we've all, um, uh, we're, we're, we're in a different stage of the conversation. To me, what I hear is absolutism, is that myth and symbols are accessible to all, if only we were just willing or put in enough effort. And like, even if, if, if I may give a little, um, just a little pushback to your book and just share some, a part that I noticed like made me feel an emotional reaction, just totally candidly. I wrote it down. Um, I was reading it at four o'clock this morning and I wrote down, um, why do myth lovers continually insist that the glories of myth are available, if not necessary, to all? If one truly wants to live a fulfilling life, how dare they say I am not fulfilled or living my highest calling and existing rapturously? Because you, you'd written something about how myth, about how it needs to be for everyone. Like everyone can use myth to access a rapturous full existence. And it's like that when I read that, how it made me feel inside was just like hurt again because it felt like being told pray harder. Um, and it's like, God's just not real to me, guys. Like, leave it alone. Why do you, why is it because something is so true to you and I believe that it is true to you? Why does it need to be applied to all? That's always the hangup that I get stuck on. It's like, and that's where there's not a literalism, but an absolutism that I buck against. Um, because it's like, no, why can't something just be true for you? And this is what's true for me. I'm not trying to persuade you of my truth or take away your faith, like if we want to engage in a friendly hole poking session, like we're doing now, we can with consent, but I'm, I'm not someone that derives pleasure from trying to um, persuade people. It's like, I'm happy to share my story and my truth. And I will resist if you try to persuade me to your side, especially if it's touching a very deep, painful wound, like feeling ignored by God, my entire childhood. It's like, that's a deep, like ingrained of like, I'm doing it right. I could not be. I could not be reading the extracurricular material, the C.S. Lewis, the message. That the, I could not be more immersed in trying to understand this Christian symbolism, this mythology, which would have felt like heresy uh, to say back then. But I could not access these truths that people were talking about. They were not evident to me. They definitely did not make me live my most full, fulfilled, rapturous life. It was the opposite for me. And even now. Uh, you know, 14 or 15 years removed from, from practicing my faith, I can still look at it and go like, yeah, like I could see how that's very helpful for some people. And the Jonah and the whale, you know, it's like a period where you're in the dark and the muck, you don't know what's going to happen and you're afraid. And I'm like, why don't we just say like, I'm really overwhelmed right now and I'm scared and I don't know what's going to happen. Why do we have to give it a story? Um, why do we have to fictionalize it in order to express our truth? And how dare people say, that I'm not living my truth unless I fictionalize it the way they do. Um, that's where it is for me that I think you're you're asking, Conrad, when I hear your question. It's not, no, it's not a literalism, but there is a sense of um, absolutism that I feel a lot from people who, let's just loosely describe them as spiritual. I know a lot of people might not identify with that word, um, but people f- who have mystical experiences, who resonate with words like soul and spirit, I find what they have in common is this idea that feels very patronizing to someone like me is like, oh, you're still a young soul. You'll get there. Just keep reading, you know, just keep seeking, meditate more fast, you know, like, oh, just watch this thing. You have, once you watch this thing, I'm telling you, it's going to change your mind. 
why the need to persuade and evangelize to me instead of just accept me? It's a, it sounds like you're saying there's, you're hearing this almost leveling and it's touching that nerve of you growing up Christian, growing up in this world where they say you can have access to the Holy Spirit or just do this more. Just, and you're, you sounds like you grew up in that world and you're like, and you kind of took a long time to find your voice and say, this doesn't work for me. I don't get it. And I can finally say that out loud. And so when you hear a similar story that says, okay, so we, you know, you've come to the point of agreement saying, okay, most people need myth and story. It's compelling. It connects with a lot, like most people is kind of what you can see in Alice. But then you're also saying, but I also cannot access this world. I can't see it. It doesn't, I'm, you're not saying it doesn't exist for Heather or for anyone else, but you're just, it just sounds to you like you're just saying, I can't see it. And I, and you're telling me I just need to do these things in order to, but it sounds like it's tapping that same level or feeling of exclusion that you felt in another in a previous worldview that you didn't quite fit into so here's another worldview that people are saying has access to everybody but you're kind of standing there empty-handed going but I don't either and even when I voice that and say to people hey it doesn't work for me people are perhaps maybe discounting your experience going no no if you just did this then and it sounds like you're being overlooked as a person does that sound about yeah so I think one thing that that um, came to me while I was reading and um, that's coming back to me now is how we both, let's just use Heather and I as examples right now because we're here. We both can feel very belittled and patronized by what the other represents. People who are very spiritual Mm. and who speak myth often feel very condescended to and and, um, patronized by people like myself who are skeptics who are like, no, that shit's not real. How can you possibly think that there's anything more? Like, why? what evidence do you have? I understand that because that's how I feel. I feel belittled when people are like, why can't you see the symbolism? Oh, you'll get there. You'll get there. Just keep, you know, or like, it'll come to you spontaneously. You'll have a car accident and you'll see the light. You know, it's like, <laughs> did you really fucking just say that? Did you really just wish horror upon me in order so that I'll see your worldview? Because that's happened. It happens. Mm. And it's like, and then I feel like I'm like, am I the stupid one? Everyone else seems to find this so enriching. Like, what is so retarded Mm. about my brain that I cannot grasp? Like, that they keep saying I'll get. Do they not see that I've tried? Do they not? They don't ask me the books I've read. I've read the Upanishads. I've read the Bhagavad Gita. I've read the Tao Te Ching. Like, I have. And people just immediately assume that I haven't because I don't Mm. relate to them or their language. And so it's like we both can make the other feel condescended to and talked down to and stupid. And I feel like, unfortunately, the intellectual skeptical atheists get such a bad rep for Mm. being condescending when really many of us feel equally, if not even more condescended to because you guys are the majority. Like I was saying, I think the majority of humanity is deeply spiritual, is deeply mystical and attuned into something that may never be accessible to people like me and there's nothing wrong with me or i i choose to not no longer believe that there's something wrong or defective about me i'm just wired differently and if there was a god who cared that i believed in it them her him it would speak my language (laughs) and i if 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 god or Christ, what you call this, the spirit of God and Christ, uh, that Christ energy that you read of in your book, Heather, I think that if that were truly accessible to everyone and it wanted to be known, it would make itself plain to the people like myself 
who would earnestly like to know it. It wouldn't speak in riddles. It wouldn't be elusive and mysterious. I wouldn't need to try so fucking hard. That's how I feel. Mm. <laughs> mm. Thanks. Thanks, Alice. Heather, wh- when you hear that, what's your, I suppose, thoughts and response to that? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, like, thank you for sharing candidly. Like, I think I was, um, well, uh, there's a good level of, like, self-awareness because I think, you know, as you know, like when you're writing a book and you're trying to like communicate and do so like from the heart, but also like anticipate, you know, you kind of have this audience in your head around you and it's like, what will this person think? What would this person think? And, um, uh, you know, a lot of the like fundamentalist or evangelical voices, like I was like, oh, I very much know like what the arg, what the pushback is going to be here. So, let me address all that. And I really appreciate like what, what you said. And honestly, like, um, it's like, I'm really interested to hear what, what you would think, because I don't have a lot of friends who are atheists. And I'm like, I'm just really interested, like how this would come across, you know what I mean? Cause, and it, it, to your point too, I'm like, I, I can empathize with feeling like, like, I don't want to be evangelized, you know? And I almost feel like, um, a resistance from all sides. If I feel like that, that's the energy of what someone is trying to like accomplish with me. It's like, um, like even mother Teresa, you know, who was Catholic, she was like, I don't try to convert anyone to Catholicism. I just try to help them be a better Buddhist or be a better Muslim or be a better human, like whatever Mm. you are. Like I, I, my wish for you is like for like a relaxation and like, a surrender into like a deeper knowing of like what's meaningful to you. So Mm -hmm. thank you like for expressing that. Um, Conrad, I can't remember exactly what the question was, but like, yeah, obviously like we're in an intentional conversation where we're kind of like, you know, trying to quote unquote, like prove our points to one another, but really like my desire was, and I think we have like this similar experience, Alice, we're like, because I see it this way, I so I feel so cut off from like the majority of everybody <laughs> where I kind of sometimes think like, you know, and even for people who like appreciate the Bible, I would say in my life, you know, and I live in the Bible belt, I can have these conversations with like almost nobody, like even for people who like appreciate the stories, you know, or who quote, like believe in God or whatever. I'm like, what do you mean by that? You know what I mean? Like, cause like we might be using the same word. We might be talking about the same story, but like, I don't think we're speaking the same language, you know? Um, and so I kind of have my own version of like the inner translator where I feel like I'm constantly like code shifting, you know, um, in order to like try to meet people where they are. And so, yeah, obviously it's like, I would love for people to read my book. Um, but yeah, even like going back to my husband, he's like, I don't think I'm target. I'm like, great. You know, like, I don't, I don't want to convert you. I just want you to have a tool and understand what this is if you were to ever need it. Um, I've read a lot of like Carl Jung. I'm sure that you're like familiar with him. And he has this funny story about like coming out of Catholicism. I don't know if it's funny. It's funny to me, (laughs) but he's like, he's like coming out and tell me if like, you know this, but he kind of like has this vision of like the Roman Catholic church. And then like all of a sudden a giant turd drops on top of it from the sky and like 
that was like probably like in his 20s or something like that, where it was basically like the symbol of like, this is all ridiculous. You know, like it was like just like this, like these people have no idea what they're talking about that like I'm completely walking away from this. And he, you know, went full on into like analytical psychology and like developed all of this and even like experimented on himself, kind of taking himself like to the brink of going crazy um, and exploring his unconscious so that he could better help his patients. Okay. Cause he was like, I can't help you if I don't understand what's going on with you. Um, anyway. And so then just by the end of his life, it, you know, it was like through his empirical scientific experimentation sort of with people of like this, this person has these dreams, you know, this symbol keeps showing up. Like, what does it mean? And to the point of what you're saying, there's like a personal unconscious and like a collective unconscious. And um, I think what the what you're kind of emphasizing is like, what is it personally, like a tree in my dream might not mean the same thing as a tree in your dream. You know what I mean? Um, so who's to say like, this is what this means kind of thing. Um, anyway, but his, his observation was like, you know, especially towards the end of life, like in order to help people like relax and like surrender to like the transition of death and not be like gripped by this fearful paralysis many times, like the reintroduction of like symbolism was like something useful to carry them through those transitions. So really it's like, I just, I just want people to understand what I think that the intention of this is so that it, so that it won't be as triggering and something that can be used as a tool were it ever to be needed. You know, like I have, I've got, things in my car, like jumper cables. And I hope I don't need them. And anytime I do, I feel like I've like forgotten how to use them and have to like do it all over again. But it's like, I don't have this emotional charge or trigger in reaction about the jumper cables. They're just there. And if I need them, I want to be able to use them without having to overcome this psychological and emotional hurdle. So... Mm. That's, that's really kind of my hope is like, you know, I feel especially like with the deconstruct and this postmodern movement, just there's so much trauma that there's like a trigger and it's a psychological wall. And I'm like, you know, I actually do try to like explain the stories in a really like logical and rational way that's like psychologically useful in order to like kind of demystify them so that they can be used, you know? So anyways, thank you for sharing mm -hmm. your feelings and like where you even felt like triggered with, with what I was writing. Um, and oh, thank, thank you. Like yeah. you, you reached out to me and I, and, and, you know, we all know, and this is letting the audience in a little bit. I was, I was a little reluctant to, to talk cause I was like, really like, first of all, why me? Because like, I'm so not that I, I, I don't think I give off that vibe that I'm interested in, in myth. But, um, but I deeply, deeply value what you just shared. Your intention was and remains with this is you're offering people a toolbox that maybe they didn't find use for uh, previously. Maybe they'll never find a use for it. But here you've presented it. You've you've packaged our mother tongue, the mother tongue of so many of us, myself included, in a way that 
is new to us. So should we ever need to come back to it, it's there in a reframed in a reframed presentation. And I do find that valuable, you know, despite my triggers and, and yeah, there, there are triggers, you know, it's like, but that's, I'm, I'm in a safe place in my own self and in my own body where I can recognize what's going on. Like, Oh yeah, I'm feeling really triggered right now. My heart's pounding. I have all these voices firing back in my head, you know, just like, what about this? You know, but I'm, I'm observing all of that. And it's like, okay, but I know that everything, every interaction that I've had from you and with you has been nothing but soft and open and curious and kind and gracious and complimentary and welcoming. And so thank you for giving me the space to very openly share my feelings and my triggers here without, um, I've never felt like you've been uh, defensive or anything. And I, I really, really do value that. And I'll dare say on behalf of other people who feel like me, you're one of the very few people that I've interacted with who have given me that safe feeling. And so thank you because people like you do exist. And that's why I still remain very, very dear friends with very many spiritual people. And I'm still open to making friends with very spiritual people, um, partly because I know how to trust myself first and foremost, and also that I've learned how to trust my, you might say intuition. Um, my, I would say my read, my impression, my instinct about who's going to be a safe person for me. And so thank you back. And Conrad, thank you <laughs> for giving us the uh, space and bringing I'm, it together. I had, to squeeze in there, <laughs> had to squeeze in there somewhere. No, but honestly, you both have just really uh, made very obvious and excavated exactly what the attempt of this show is to do. It makes me feel like a bit of a jerk at times to take two lovely people like yourself and then package <laughs> things. Because what I attempt to do is, is take these ideas and I'm wanting to enter at that surface level, the divisive level, the level where we first respond to it for. So I'm kind of pulling you guys, kicking and streaming, into a frame to excavate kind of what's going on. But you've kind of moved through these layers just so well because you're, I think you're both very, you know, I have certain conversations with some people who it's very hard to get to that personal layer. It's very hard to excavate that human journey behind the idea. And this is where I'm, I'm attempting in every episode to subversively I don't think it's always that obvious but to get to that level where people can find the human that traces alongside that idea and you've both been able to I suppose really make it obvious to friends of the show going here is the idea here's how it works for me and here is how I as a human interact with with that because I hear in both of you so like so many more layers of connection the, the layer of disagreement seems to seems to be coming on the level of here is how I see reality and I can't help that and here is how I engage with reality and I can't help that and both of you express this level of isolation in seeing the world a certain way being helpless to how you engage with that world and then um, both of you in your own way but Heather specifically in this regard writing a book with her journey and mapping here's how people could connect with other people like me in this space. Here's how I communicate um, myself to be known in that sense. And so it's like we, it's very easy in conversations around ideas, especially ones that have been culture-ward and clickbaited to be tribal markers. 
that can instantly divide. So more and more is being politicized in modern society now. So even, even the science of carbon is a politicized position. The science of new, like random things that you wouldn't predict are now tribal indicators of who you can talk to and who you can't talk with. And so to break those down is very difficult. And in, in the religious space, that's kind of happening again as well because our human journeys lead us in different directions. We want to be known. And so, um, Heather, as you kind of shared with us there on your intention in writing the book, it, it really offers a perspective on the layers on which we engage with these ideas. I shoehorn you and force you into this, sell it to me. And I was talking with um, maybe for Super Friends, I'll probably edit this out because it's maybe too personal. I don't know. Alice, I think what I appreciate about your perspective is like, the empirical, anecdotal, like, what are we observing on the outside? So you even have like, you know, with atoms and molecules, it's like, they have their individual characteristics. Um, but then when you put them together, they give birth or way to something that you could never predict. So it's like you have H2O, like two hydrogen and an oxygen molecule, and you put them together and you get wet. What is that? You know? So it's it's this picture of like the opposites coming together in a way that gives birth to something like completely, yes, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I actually think it's like we're describing two sides of the same coin where it's like this external picture of reality that I almost think you have to have like an atheistic mind to be like honest and curious and open about. Like I would trust you more than like 99% of my religious friends or whatever to give me like an objective <laughs> view of reality, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I think myth maybe just speaks a little bit to like the, uh, the internal geography um, mm -hmm. where like, you know, if I, if I'm saying like, I'm like, I don't say like, I'm having like a limbic system day. I say like, I feel joy, mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, what is that? I'm getting a dopamine hit. <laughs> yes, I'm getting a dopamine yeah. hit. And it's like, I don't want to say that. I want to yeah. say like, I feel rapture and joy, yeah. you know? And so it's, it's like the outside packaging of something internal, but they can't be split apart. Just for clarification, and maybe, maybe it needs to go at the beginning. I don't know, for context, because we've come so far. When we're talking myth, why Christian myth? Can it just be Bambi? Can it just be Disney myth? Can it just be fairy tale myth? Can it just be Islamic myth? Why Christian myth? And are they all on equal footing as, are you saying that, because you've, you've mentioned before, okay, this is the mother tongue of the Western culture. You know, Jordan Peterson is always talking about don't dismiss, you know, the, the religious grounds on which our civilization was built. And I think he's referring to Christianity in that sense. Um, it, or are you saying it is it is a superior version of myth? It's got better metaphors in it, and it's it's more real than something else. Or are all myths kind of equal in this sense? And if you would like to hear the rest of that convo and that sneaky little bit I edited out in the thing, I left enough in to be like, I'm going to edit this out, and this is for the Super Friends. Yeah, you like that? Yeah, yeah. Just put them on the hook and get them in, get them in a Super Friends segment. Uh, if you'd like to hear the rest of that convo, idistitis.org. Thanks for your support. Now, Matt. Very interesting exchange. Now, did I did I live up to it? Not yeah. a debate. Not a debate, right? Well done. Hey, thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Not a debate. I was so like skeptical, wasn't I? Yeah, you were. You but were. that was great. They were really. I felt like a jerk. 
they were really nice. Mm. And as far as uh, both Alice and Heather's journey, they like did my job and ideas digest for me. Normally I'm going, hey, let's debate these ideas. And I'm leaving, trying to pull out clues for people to go, oh, their childhood experience might indicate why they saw it this way. Whereas they kind of went, here's the idea. Oh, I'm feeling very triggered by this and here's why. And then Heather's like, wow, thanks for sharing that with me. My feelings on this and I don't ever want to... And so it was really like the hu- these women really made the job easier of excavating the human underneath the idea. So I feel yeah. like it was like model 100%. ideas digest discourse, yeah. not a debate kind of, kind of stuff there. So Matt, but here's the thing. You and I, we're in the, in the spiritual car yard, right? We want to buy something. Where are we at? And I would like to know. Toyota car yard or we Mercedes car yard? Well, I think it's an everything car yard. We've got the punter's car yard, you know, uh-huh. a few vehicles for the punter, a few pseudo intellectual. Oh, look at those. Look at the stats on that mm-hmm. radio. Oh, yeah. is that Bose? And then we got the intellectual, like, hovering slightly, like, yeah. really advanced, probably more nerd. AI driven. Yeah, probably AI driven kind of cars. Like, mm. oh, you don't understand how this works, you know. So we're, we're looking around, we're looking to buy. Matt, how much of Heather's idea? Ooh. Are you buying? Well, I no, I don't tell me. No, 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 no. That's for the super friends of the show. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so super friends, Matt and I are going to share how much we're going to buy. We might discuss, well, we will discuss what we think. This idea at its best, it's worst. Matt's got a lot of, he was taking notes furiously the whole time. And I feel like he's got to, we've got to discuss this. So thanks for tuning in to the episode. I just, I just thought, oh, hear the rest of the episode. Catch you all in the next episode. Heather, you've your book. Tell us a little bit about your book and where people can contact you to find out more yeah. about that. So it's called uh, Returning to Eden, A Field Guide for the Spiritual Journey by Heather Hamilton. It comes out um, officially on uh, February 22nd. So today is the 16th. I don't know when this when the podcast Soon. will go up. but probably, yeah. It could be out now. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, but you can find it on Amazon. Um, it's a print ebook or audiobook. So however you like your books. Oh, I you like can, them in yeah. audio. Alice, you're also doing things. What uh, have you been up to lately? Plug whatever you would like to plug. <laughs> I've been modeling for Playboy lately, guys. <laughs> That's what I've been doing lately. <laughs> I, have, I have been saying. Well done. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. No, it's, it's actually been a lot of fun and something that um, I think a lot of people who have survived through purity culture have fantasized about doing um i just maybe not playboy specifically but just really um celebrating their bodies and without shame and play having fun playing with their sexuality and offering it and um and enjoying it and so uh yeah i've been doing that and i've also been working on um another book proposal for another book that i i I cannot speak about just yet but it's it's in the works and it does explore ideas of fundamentalism in the secular world is what i will say we'll see what goes with it i'm not sure where it'll where it'll go but um 